Hey folks, Andy Patton here, starting the first week of Gonzaga's offseason with a therapy session of Mailbag Monday, breaking down what happened against Arkansas and talking a lot about how this team responds to physicality and what adjustments they need to make for them to get over the hump. All right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Don't go away. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, as we enter the offseason for Gonzaga hoops. This episode of Locked On Zags is brought to you by Stat Hero. Stat Hero is reshaping the way you play fantasy sports. Dozens of house-based games to play daily. No sharks, no funky props, just your skill versus the lineups you choose. Sign up today at stathero.com slash locked on. Now that we're getting into the offseason, I especially, especially want to thank all of you who make this podcast your first listen of the day. I know there's a ton of content out there to listen to. I appreciate those of you who are sticking with a Gonzaga podcast as the season has come to an end. And of course, those of you who have checked the show out on YouTube, we are well over 400 subscribers, trying to get to 500 subscribers before the end of the national championship game. So about a week left. If you listen to the show, if you're hearing this now and you are not a subscriber on YouTube, just go to youtube.com, search Locked On Zags, hit that big orange subscribe button. I would really appreciate it. Today is also Mailbag Monday. We will continue to do Mailbag Monday throughout the off season. It is my plan. It is my favorite episode every single week. Today is a double Mailbag Monday. We have Mailbag Monday on Monday, Mailbag Monday as well on Tuesday. I kind of broke up all of the questions that I received into two different sections. Today we're talking about the Arkansas game. Like I said, it's a bit of a therapy session. We're just getting it all out there hoping to make people feel a little bit better or at least have gotten to have had their voice heard, their frustrations heard about that game against Arkansas. Tuesday's show will be much more about the future, answering questions about who's going to stay, who's going to go, who's going to fill certain spots. So if you asked me a question for Mailbag Monday and it was in that vein and you do not hear it answered today, rest assured I will get to all of those on Tuesday's episode. We're going to start today, though. We're going to start segment one. We're talking about the referees and the physicality. We're going to start with this question from Aaron via Gmail. Aaron says, was the game called well or was it too physical? Neither. (laughs) I don't think that it was... I don't think the refs let the game get too physical in the sense that I, I mean, if they fouled Chet Holmgren out on a lot of questionable calls, uh, they called a lot of block charge calls. I don't think that they let the game be too physical, but I do not think that it was a well-officiated game. I have said this already on the podcast. Lots of other people have said this as well. This was a poorly officiated game. It was not a particularly uneven game. I know a lot of people have felt that Gonzaga got screwed and that it was the referee's fault. That is not the case here. I want to be very clear. I do not believe that. Gonzaga does not believe that. The players on the team do not believe that. They lost this game because they could not make shots to save their lives. They had a horrific offensive game. It happens. It happened at an extremely inopportune time for the Zags. There are other factors at well, and we're going to get into a lot of those factors in this episode. But the officiating is not why they lost. Chet Holmgren getting fouled out on a lot of soft calls was very, very unfortunate. The way that his collegiate career ended, if you watch a superimposed video of all five of the fouls that he committed in that game, 
There's one, maybe two that are definitely unquestionably legitimate fouls. The rest, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty suspect. Pretty questionable calls. And part of it is just the way that the NCAA has determined that officials should call games. So it's not necessarily the official's fault. It is the the rules that the NCAA has dictated, which have made the product not as good. I don't think that that's particularly debatable. It has been frustrating to watch college basketball and the inconsistencies with the charge flop rule, the inconsistency or the charge block rule, as well as the flop rule. Lots of stuff that's been a bit of a challenge this year. It manifested in a poorly officiated game for the Zags on Thursday, but was not the reason that they lost. Next question comes from Christian via Gmail. Christian says, hard not to blame the refs, but we shouldn't. This is an extremely sore subject for us given the last minutes of the North Carolina championship game. There were some blatantly bad calls, but there were also open looks that could have been knocked down. I appreciate, admire that the Zags fought until the very end. How do you come to terms with this? Yeah, I kind of touched on a lot of this already. It was a bummer that in particular, one of the most egregious calls in that game was a player blatantly stepping out of bounds and it did not get called. That caused a lot of trauma for Gonzaga fans who remember Kennedy Meeks very specifically being out of bounds in the North Carolina game. That's why we're calling this a therapy session. We're trying to get through some of the stuff that we're feeling as Gonzaga fans. I understand that. Uh, I echo everything that Christian said here, and I, like I said, I already kind of touched on it. Zags missed a lot of easy shots. It's not the referee's fault that that happened. Fouling out Chet Holmgren was a significant bummer, but less the referees, more the way that the NCAA has de- determined we should be officiating games. Uh, I I don't blame the refs. It's never something that I, I do typically. Uh, I will acknowledge when when the officiating was poor, like I have done for this game. I do not think that it was blatantly one-sided. In fact, Drew Timmy got away with a lot of hooks on offense. There was a lot of things that did go Gonzaga's way in this one. I just don't think it was a particularly well-officiated game. And that's the end of conversation I'm going to have about this game with regards to officiating. Next up, this question comes from Chuck via Gmail. Chuck says, While some would say that they lost to a physical team, recently a national sportscaster, this would be Jay Billis, said college basketball is becoming more like rugby and it needs to stop. I feel it's ruining the game, but since the aggressive play seems to be encouraged by coaches and refs, do you think Gonzaga will have to adopt that style of play in order to win a championship? Chuck, my friend, you have asked the million-dollar question. You are not alone in having asked the million-dollar question. Larry via Gmail sent me a very similar question, but he included a quote from a USA Today article, which I'm going to read here, which says, Gonzaga players operate in a free-flowing offensive system, but often in the NCAA tournament, and particularly this year, that's not really the way the game is played. If you want to score, you have to either make a tough contested shot or finish through contact. When freedom of movement goes away, what's plan B? Larry's question, Chuck's question, also Matt via Twitter DM. I'm going to read this one here before we get into it. He says, it seems like Arizona struggled with a similar team in Houston. What can the Zags do going forward in terms of strategy or personnel to match up better against big athletic defensive minded teams? Or are these kinds of teams just always going to be the kryptonite of a few Lloyd system? Here we go. This is the the conversation for this segment probably for the offseason in a lot of ways. Gonzaga struggles against physicality. It is a sentiment that has been out there for decades, literally since Gonzaga burst onto the scene in 1999. There are There is... Certainly a segment of college basketball fans who overemphasize this way too much, who believe that Gonzaga cannot beat any team that is remotely physical, that every team they play is extremely soft, blah, 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 blah. We've heard all of that. We know that that, for the most part, is not true. 
However, Gonzaga does struggle against defensive-minded, overtly physical teams. They're, they're, this is no longer something that we can debate whether they actually struggle against these teams. They do. Now, there are not a lot of teams that are really, really good at being tough physically and good defensively. It's not like there's a whole bunch of teams out there. Every team in the SEC, Big 12, Big 10, etc. can beat Gonzaga by using this strategy. I want to be clear. I don't believe that. And I think most people who watch Gonzaga know that that's not true. They run a lot of very good teams out of the gym. This happens frequently. But there is a subset of teams out there that have proven they can beat Gonzaga by being more physical than them, by being tenacious on defense, and by stopping Gonzaga from getting out in transition. Arkansas did it. Baylor did it. Tarleton State dang near did it earlier this year. Alabama, their victory was a little bit different, uh, but in a lot of ways they did it too. Duke, obviously very good team. They did it. So there is a recipe to defeat Gonzaga. And the question now is will Mark Few, will the Zags find a way to adjust? Part of that adjustment would need to be personnel-based. That is a, another topic of conversation we will address as we get a better sense of who's staying, who's going. Does Drew Timmy come back? Does Andrew Nemphard surprise everybody and come back? Does Gonzaga have a completely new backcourt next year? Like, There's a lot of conversations that will need to happen for us to really determine if they're going to have a very different way of approaching physicality. The things that Gonzaga was lacking, I think the biggest thing that they were lacking this year was a, somebody who could just go get a bucket. We've talked about the so Gonzaga used to run a very a much more half court offense oriented team. This this didn't used to be the norm. This getting out and running in transition and not having as much of a half court offense. This is unusual. Do you, if you remember the 2012-2013 team, the first Gonzaga team that was ever ranked number one in the country. That team had Kevin Pangos, Gary Bell in the back court, Kelly Olynyk, Elias Harris in the front court. They were not a get out and run transition style team. That's not what they were. Pangos and Bell could get out and go occasionally, and they did. Kevin was sneaky good at getting out in transition and getting easy buckets a couple of times a game, but they did not run the way that this team runs. Not even close. They relied on getting the basketball to Kelly Olynyk, running a high-low offense between Kelly and Elias Harris, and scoring in the half court. They've done this before. But most of Gonzaga's success prior to 2015-2016 was not super deep in the NCAA tournament. They didn't make a national championship game until after they decided to start running more. Their success in conference play, their Tommy Lloyd's success at Arizona, all of the best successes that Coach Few and Coach Lloyd have had have been with teams that get out in transition. I don't think that that is the problem. I think the problem is not having a really sound half-court offense outside of transition. And more importantly, for this roster in particular, if we're getting granular and we're talking 21-22 specifically, they didn't have a guy who could go get a bucket. The half-court offense this year was not bad. I think there's kind of a sentiment that, oh, they were really good in transition, but they were bad when they had to be in the half-court offense. It wasn't bad. It was still very, very good. It was still one of the best offenses in the country. The the pick and roll, high pick and roll with Drew Timmy and Andrew Nemphard or Andrew Nemphard and Chet Holmgren was obscenely good this year. There's a reason that Andrew Nemphard was widely considered the best or one of the best point guards in the country. I realize his last game soured a lot of people on that sentiment, and I understand that. It was frustrating that he did not well play well in that game. But this Gonzaga team does have a good half-court offense. 
when they were struggling to execute it. And again, Andrew Nembard got a lot of really good looks in the Arkansas game. They ran their half-court offense. They got the looks they wanted to get. They came, he came off the screen. He had little 11, 12-foot floaters in the mid-range spot, which is where he thrives, and he just wasn't knocking them down. I think that's an important thing to remember. Gonzaga's half-court offense didn't flounder. They just missed shots. They just missed shots. But... When you can't get out in transition and part of your half-court offense is just not working, you need another plan. And last year's team could rely on Jalen Suggs to go get a bucket. The 2016-2017 team that went to the national championship, they could rely on Nigel Williams-Goss to go get a bucket. He could post up, he could dribble drive, he could do that kind of thing. This year's team didn't really have that. And I think that was a big issue. So can Gonzaga handle physical teams? Yes, I think they can. I think they have a decent plan against them, but they don't see very many of them. And it does make it harder when they don't have a qualified, I guess, plan C in this case. Because again, the plan B, the half-court offense, wasn't terrible. It just was not working against Arkansas. I think that's I think that's an important way to think about it, but it doesn't mean that we should just be complacent with the staff not making any changes. That's not what I'm arguing for at all. I don't think that they should go back to not running. I think getting out in transition has been a huge part of what has elevated this program from being a good team that occasionally gets a good seed to being a team that is perennially a number one team in the country. The the pace has been a factor in that in a positive way, but they just need to make sure that they have more options when that gets taken away. And this game, they went to their backup option and it didn't work and they crumbled. All right, we're going to come back in the second segment. We got more listener submitted questions. Before we get there, though, I want to tell you all about Stat Hero. Stat Hero's NCAA single game pickums pits the star players against each other in an amazing hybrid between fantasy and sports gambling. Take control back from those handicappers that always seem to have the advantage and start focusing on the players you know best with a gameplay that doesn't rely on big spreads, long odds, or funky props. Stat Hero gives you the advantage, resulting in their gamers winning four times more often. Why? Because Stat Hero eliminates the mystery about who or what you are going up against. In addition to their pick'em games, they also have dozens of lineups you can comb through to take on head-to-head. They simply post sets of players for you to take on with a set of players you choose. Stat Hero is the easiest and fastest way to get your sports action fixed. The simple, sleek gameplay will have you playing in minutes. This is what Daily Fantasy was meant to be. Sign up for free right now at stathero.com slash locked on and use promo code locked on for a 100% deposit match. That's stathero.com slash locked on, promo code locked on for a 100% match. All right, segment two. Still Andy Patton, still locked on Zag, still going through listener submitted questions for our first Mailbag Monday after the conclusion of the 21-22 season for the Zags. This next question comes from Christian via Gmail, still talking about this physicality issue for the Zags. He says, you mentioned after the Memphis game that we as fans can't be upset by this notion or theory and then default to it ourselves. How much truth is there to this? Robert Sacre mentioned that there is a need for a player like Benedict Matherin. I always always want to mess up his last name, Matherin. I want to throw out the idea that the return of Dominic Harris next season might be a big boost. No, they're not all that similar, but Harris will return with a fire in his gut, I believe. Yes, so I love Rob. Love Rob to death. I I think casually mentioning that this team needs a guy like Benedict Matherin when Matherin was the Pac-12 player of the year is a consensus top 10 pick in the NBA draft. Like, 
any team in the country would want to have Ben Matherin on their team. So I, I don't know. It's it's not a, a very it's not a very bold claim, I guess, but I do understand the sentiment. Bigger physical guards is an area the Zags haven't recruited particularly well. There's not really a lot of debate about that. When you look at Gonzaga's best guards, they are often like true point guards and they are not, you know, Matherin's like 6'7", like 230. He's a big guard. Gonzaga hasn't had a lot of those guys. Nigel Williams-Goss was a big point guard, but he was not that big, not even close to that big. I think he was like 6'4", somewhere in there. You know, Gary Bell was a combo guard who was like 6'1". Like they've had a lot of undersized guards. A bigger guard would be nice. This is why Anthony Black, who is heavily being recruited by Gonzaga, should be committing early in the week, maybe even have has committed by the time you're listening to this show. Black is 6'7". That's the kind of guard. That's the kind of player that Rob's talking about. And I agree 100%. They need to go find guys like that. In terms of Dominic Harris, I sort of feel like there's a absence makes the heart grow fonder type of thing with Dom. I think he's going to be good. I don't think there's any serious debate about whether he's going to be good. But simply because he wasn't there and Gonzaga didn't meet expectations, there's a lot of this kind of belief that he would have had a huge impact or will have a huge impact. I hope that he does. But it, it's it's hard to know what he's going to do at this point. He's obviously already had a big impact helping recruit guys like Jalen Suggs and Julian Strother and you know de facto Chet Holmgren to Gonzaga. But we haven't seen him on the court yet. I think he's gonna he's gonna play a big role next year. And in fact, we're gonna get to the next question here from Derek via Twitter DM because he asked a similar question. He said, if Dom Harris was able to come back this year, how would that have had an impact on the GU team down the stretch and in the tournament? This is a really hard question to answer. We have not seen Dominic Harris play very much basketball in a Gonzaga uniform. We just haven't. We, we, and it's, it's obviously, it's a bummer that we haven't. It's not his fault. He didn't play much as a true freshman because of Andrew Nembhard, because of Jalen Suggs, because of Aaron Cook. There just wasn't a role for him. He didn't play this year because he was hurt. So we just don't know. We, we don't really know. It wouldn't have hurt. I, I don't think there's, there's no debate there. It depends when he would have come back, how quickly he could assimilate to the offense, all of that. Obviously, Gonzaga did not feel like they were in a spot where they could bring him back. All indications from social media were that he was practicing with the team. He seems to be going at or close to 100% before the end of the year. Potentially, he could have gotten in a game. There may have been some redshirting or compliance reasons they didn't get him in a game. They may have just not felt like he was... 100% ready, that he might disrupt the rhythm, whatever it may have been. I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating on all of this. I don't know the entire reasoning. But Dom's a good shooter. He's a good defensive player. He would have given him depth in the backcourt. Uh, Julian Strother really struggled in the NCAA tournament. Had Dom been a part of the mix at that point, I don't think they're going to throw him out there if he'd only played like one or two games. But if he had been a part of the mix, had started to get his rhythm going a little bit, then yeah, I think they could have used him. But he would have, in my mind, he would have had to start playing by like in early February, if he wasn't on the court in early February, and I said this at the time, by that point, he's just not going to play. They're not going to bring him back for the last few weeks of the season and try to acclimate him to the offense at that time. I think he's going to have a nice role next year. We're going to talk about that a lot more in Tuesday's episode with some questions about what the future of the backcourt is going to look like. But I'm, I don't know that he would have had a huge contribution this year unless he had returned earlier, much earlier in the year than he did. Or then, he, then it was rumored that he was going to, I suppose. 
Next question comes from Aaron via Gmail. He had a couple in the show. He says, I kind of feel like Gonzaga had a better chance to win a championship with the style of play of their first championship game, even with less talent. That may just be a style preference on my part. Do you think they need to slow it down a little and play more of a half-court offense, and are they worn out by the end of the season? Okay, a couple of topics here. One, the the, the 2016-2017 team had way more front-court depth. That was a huge difference between this year's team and last year's team. That team, Zach Collins and Killian Tilly are both NBA players, and they were off the bench on that team. Shema Karnowski and Jonathan Williams were your starters in the front court. You had those two guys coming off the bench. Uh, you obviously had a, a lot of guard depth as well, but you had a guy like Nigel Williams-Goss, who, again, was more like Jalen Suggs in the sense that he could go get a bucket if you needed them to. But they also fell victim to the same, basically the same thing that this year's team fell victim to. They just fell victim earlier in the tournament. But the half-court offense did not work in the North Carolina game. Shemek Karnowski could not buy a bucket. They could not get the half-court offense going, and they lost. So it's, it's not really a different story. It just happened later in the tournament. You could argue that Gonzaga, if they had faced a team like Arkansas in that year's tournament run, they probably would have lost. They just didn't happen to face that. I mean, they faced West Virginia, who gave them a, lot, a big scare, and Jordan Matthews hit a huge shot, and they ended up moving on. But I, I don't think that the, the, the style is all that different. This team obviously ran more. Do they get tired by the end of the season? Maybe, but it, that wasn't really the issue. The last game of the year before the Arkansas game was Memphis, and they ran a super athletic Memphis team out of the gym. So they didn't seem fatigued at that point. In this game, they made some uncharacteristic mistakes. Andrew Nempart had a bad game. We talked about that, but I don't think that it was a fatigue issue. In fact, we saw Arkansas players doubled over before halftime. I don't think that fatigue played a role here. I don't think that they should slow down getting out in transition. I mentioned this already in a previous question, but all of Gonzaga's most successful seasons in their history as a program have been when they have been pushing the pace, all of them. Tommy Lloyd took a roster that underperformed, started to push the pace with basically the exact same team, and they were a number one seed and the second best team in the country throughout the year. The pace is not the issue. Not having a fallback plan when the pace doesn't work is more the issue, and that's what we already kind of talked about and I think was, was a significant issue for this team against Arkansas. Next question from Aaron before we close out the second segment. He says, did the talent level rise cause the change of pace? And has the talent pool at Gonzaga actually lowered their chances at a championship win with their change of pace? I'll take the second question first. Has Gonzaga getting better players made them less likely to win a championship? No, 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 it has not. Uh, I don't know how else to answer that other than no. Uh, I kind of touched on the pace already. Them pushing the pace has led them to have more success universally than they did previously. Universally. To answer the question more specifically about the when they changed the pace, it, the Zags started pushing the pace during the 2014-2015 season. What happened that year was it was the first year in the post-Kevin Pangos era when they had Kevin Pangos at the at the helm, they didn't push. Again, they pushed sometimes, but they were not a fast-paced, constantly out in transition team the way that they have been since then. So, the first year post Kevin Pangos era, Josh Perkins supposed to be the guy. Now, Perkins wasn't a big push transition type guy himself. Uh, that wasn't really a big part of his game. But the 14-15 season, he got kicked in the jaw very early in the year, missed the rest of the season. So, Gonzaga's guard rotation that season was transfer Eric McClellan. True freshman guard Silas Melson, and then Kyle Dranginis, who I believe was a senior or a junior that year. That 
there's no point guard. <laughs> Eric McClellan was the point guard. I don't mean to be disrespectful to him because he was extremely talented and he led that team, but he was he he came to Gonzaga expecting to be more of an off-guard role. He ended up stepping right into the point guard role. So Gonzaga at the time was kind of trying to run this half-court, you know, get the ball to the bigs because that team had DeMontis Simonis and Shemek Karnowski and Kyle Wilcher and just facilitate that way. But they struggled. They couldn't really do it. And so eventually they, they opted to start pushing the pace. And then things clicked. Immediately things clicked. If you recall, this team was pretty darn close to not making the NCAA tournament. They lost to Portland in the regular season. They lost to a couple not good teams in the WCC. And they they had to win the championship in order to make the tournament. They snuck in as an 11 seed. And by that time, they were humming along. They'd figured out this pace thing. The guards were cruising. They dismantled six seed. They destroyed Utah in the second. I think the six seed was St. John's. They dismantled Utah in the second round. Uh, and they went all the way to the Sweet 16. Of course, they lost to 10-seeded Syracuse, which was a very strange game to lose, but that was when the pace was born. So the talent level that we're talking about, the Jalen Suggs, the Julian Strothers, the Hunter Salases, the Nolan Hickmans, the Chet Holmgrens, these five-star guys, this all happened after that. So Gonzaga started pushing the pace, and then we started seeing the high-level talent. So that's that's kind of where we're at with the pace. I'm 100% supporting of the pace. I understand that there's some, some questions about it. I think it has been what has elevated Gonzaga to this elite level that they've been at? Yes, they haven't been able to win with it. Yes, they need to make some adjustments. But the overall pace that they are running at right now is not an issue for me. Two segments down. Coming up, we're going to answer even more listener-submitted questions in the third segment. But before we get there, I want to tell you all about Built Bar. I'm sticking to my New Year's resolution this year to eat right thanks to Built Bar. It almost feels like it's not really a resolution because I actually enjoy eating them. Have you tried the Puffs? If you haven't, you're missing out on one of Built Bar's best tasting bars. Puffs are the first ever protein-infused marshmallow. They're fluffy, they're marshmallowy, they're not just a protein bar, they're a treat. And they're covered in 100% real chocolate. In fact, all Built Bars are covered in 100% real chocolate. A typical candy bar can be anywhere from two to 300 calories. Most Built Bars contain 130 calories, four grams of sugar, four net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. They have mint brownie, coconut, coconut almond, and new for this month, white chocolate cookies and cream. They are all delicious, and new flavors are coming out all the time. Go to Built.com, use promo code LOCKED15, and get 15% off your order. That's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at Built.com. All right, segment three. Still Andy Patton, still locked on Zag, still getting through our therapy session, talking about the end, the premature end of Gonzaga basketball's 21-22 season. We got three more questions to get through. All of them come from Aaron via Gmail. He starts out, he says, I believe the champ I believe in the championship game loss hangover. The Zags seem to be out of sorts all tournament long. Would you agree? Well, yes, the Zags struggled through in, a, in all three NCAA tournament games. I don't think there's any any way to realistically debate that. They were barely defeating Georgia State, a 16 seed at halftime. They were down 10 at halftime to number 9 seed Memphis, and they got beat in every facet of the basketball game against Arkansas. I don't blame it on losing to St. Mary's in the championship game. I just don't. I don't. I guess I, I don't believe in the premise in general. Gonzaga has taken losses late in the season and turned that into more success. We saw them against, they lost to BYU on senior night in Provo. 
in 2017, turned around, did not lose another game until the national championship game against North Carolina. I don't believe that a loss to St. Mary's in the championship game was the is, is the kind of I, I just I don't believe it. I don't buy that. That's what caused them to to uh, lose these to, to struggle in the NCAA tournament. I think there's an obvious inability to hit free throws. To they weren't finding their shots. They were out of rhythm a little bit. I'm just not attributing that happening to the St. Mary's loss. I do think that St. Mary's taught other teams the recipe to beat Gonzaga, and we saw Arkansas utilize that in a lot of ways. Team, some teams have tried to run with Gonzaga, and that rarely works. Arkansas didn't really attempt to do that. They just attempted to stop them from getting out in transition and then forced them to beat them in the half court, and, and that worked. So I think that St. Mary's helped other teams defeat Gonzaga, but I don't think that losing that game is necessarily what caused them to to spiral in a sense and not have a good NCAA tournament. Next question from Aaron. He says, people question if the Zags have an unfair advantage with the conference they're in. In my opinion, it's the other way. For the majority of the season, they played lesser competition and they were able to out-track me teams running up and down the court. I feel they never had much of an opportunity to play a half-court game or play different styles other than out of the conference where they did have a lot of success. I feel that really showed in all our parts of our three tournament games. They had trouble getting a rhythm going on offense, and it seemed teamwork was lacking. I didn't feel that they involved Holmgren in the half court as well, and they could have had, and as they could have, excuse me, and Timmy seemed to create on his own against Memphis. Okay, a couple things I want to point out here. Uh, Gonzaga's, some of Gonzaga's toughest games were in conference play, so I don't necessarily like the sentiment or the argument that they only had to play a half-court game out of conference. That's not true. San Francisco and St. Mary's in particular took away Gonzaga's ability to run. They had to play more of a half-court offense against the Gales and the Dons than they did in virtually every one of their non-conference games. So, but... Obviously, the other teams in the conference, the Pepperdines, the San Diego's, the Portland's, whatever. Uh, yeah, Gonzaga was basically able to outrun those teams and lead them to victory. They also outrun, you know, Memphis and led them to victory. They've outrun a lot of teams and lead them to victory. So again, I'm kind of pushing back on the on the pace being an issue. In terms of Gonzaga not figuring out how to run a, a half-court offense, yeah, they had some issues with that. I don't think teamwork was lacking. I don't buy that. I don't. It's not like they were all take, playing isolation ball and not passing. They ran their pick and roll. They swung the ball around to the open shooters. They just weren't making shots. Teamwork was not the issue. Uh, involving Holmgren in the half-court, this was probably would probably be my biggest criticism of Coach Few and the staff this year. They struggled to figure out what to do with Chet, Chet Holmgren in the half-court offense. I don't know that there's any other way to argue that. He was a phenomenal, phenomenal three-point shooter, particularly in transition, and it took him a long time to find his three-point shot in the half-court offense. I, at one point in the year, I distinctly remember he was shooting 17% on three-pointers within the half-court offense, but like 46% on threes in transition. That number obviously came up, and he shot better from in the, in the half-court offense, but Gonzaga did struggle to figure out what to do with him. They didn't let him create. They didn't give him a lot of isolation opportunities. Drew Timmy obviously was a big factor there. So yes, I'm with you on this complaint that Gonzaga didn't know what to do with Chet Holmgren in half-court offensive sets. Timmy did not create on his own against Memphis, for the record. He did go out and get get some buckets. But Gonzaga made halftime adjustments in terms of how they were trying to get the ball to Drew Timmy. And those half-court adjustments, halftime, excuse me, adjustments worked. 
And that's what that's what got Drew Timmy those 11 points in four minutes. I Drew Timmy obviously made some tough shots, and kudos to him. He deserves a lot of the credit there. But I think it's disingenuous to not credit Mark Few and the staff because they did do things differently coming out of halftime in that game, and it did directly lead to them erasing that Memphis lead and ending up securing a victory there. Final question of the show comes from Aaron again. He says, As far as shooting in the tournament goes, it occurred to me that sight lines may be an issue. A record was almost set for free throw percentage this year, but there's a lot of teams struggling at the line in the tournament, as well as struggling from three. Does Gonzaga playing in smaller arenas affect their shooting during the tournament? Aaron, my friend, there have been a lot of attempts to find what's wrong with this Gonzaga team and what caused this, and I understand that, and I appreciate that, and I know everybody else has a lot of these same questions. The Zags just did not make shots. They just did not make the shots they needed to make. I do not believe that sight lines were an issue. Yes, Gonzaga plays in a lot of small arenas. So does St. Peter's. And they, you know, are in the Elite Eight playing for a Final Four spot. As I'm recording this, they're losing pretty badly to North Carolina. So I suspect that their season is probably over. But no, I don't I don't buy into the sightline things. Gonzaga played multiple games. Uh, they've played in Provo for the last couple of years. That's a 20,000-square-foot arena. They play a ton of neutral site games in NBA arenas. Obviously, they've, this is not their first time playing at the Moda Center in Portland. They have played a lot of basketball in Portland at the Moda Center previously. So this was, you know, this, this, you can't even use that excuse for the Georgia State or Memphis games because they've played in that arena before. No, so I don't, I don't really buy into this. I, I don't think it's, I think it's an, I think it's an anomaly. I think they, they struggled to make free throws in the first game. They heard a bunch about it. Maybe they got in their heads a little bit and they just, they just couldn't knock them down. They just shot poorly. It's hard to stomach that that's sometimes all that it is. They didn't, not want it as much as the other team. They didn't have dramatic, you know, off the court issues. They weren't up partying all night. They weren't, you know, they just missed shots. They just missed shots. Maybe there was some fatigue. I think that's a reasonable thing to argue. Uh, maybe they should have worked more on some specific half court offensive sets with Chet Holmgren. Yeah, I can, I can get behind that 100%. But at the end of the day, they just missed shots. And that's why they lost to Arkansas. And it sucks. I mean, it's, it really sucks. I know, I feel for everybody out there who's, who's trying to figure out what happened here. Um, but I think that while it's not quite that simple, and, and I touched on a few other reasons here, uh, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not a whole lot more than that, unfortunately. Uh, and, and that's why it's really hard to win the NCAA tournament. It's really, really, really hard. Uh, there, there's a reason that a lot of teams have never done it, and a lot of teams go a really, really long time without doing it. Uh, Gonzaga's streak, uh, you know, since they've been a relevant basketball program, is still longer than the entire Pac-12. The last time the Pac-12 won a national championship was 1997, when Arizona did it with Mike Bibby as the point guard. It was just hard. It's just hard to win it all. Uh, hopefully the Zags will be back. We're going to talk a lot, a lot more about what that's going to look like in the, sec- in the second episode of Mailbag Monday for this week, because we're going to discuss the future of the program. We're going to talk about who's staying, who's going, who's stepping up into a bigger role, who Gonzaga could look at at the transfer portal. All of that is going to be covered in Tuesday's episode. And then after that, we're going to start our season in review series, talking about Andrew Nemhard for Wednesday's episode, all available right here on the Locked On Zags podcast, which you can find on Twitter at ScoreZagsScore or at Locked On Zags. Finally, thank you again to those of you who have made Locked On Zags your first listen every day. Now is a great time to make your second listen, the Locked On NBA Draft podcast. With college basketball season wrapping up, give Raphael Barlow and a flurry of guests a listen as they prepare for the NBA draft. Hear thoughts on Chet Holmgren, Paolo Bancaro, and the rest of the NBA's future stars on the Locked On NBA Draft podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. All right, thank you all for listening, and as always, go 
Zags.